Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Bob, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Um, would I like to? Sure, I would. Uh, I'm Bob Katz. Uh, the reason I'm being interviewed here is that uh, going back um, many, many decades, I, I was involved in efforts to both research the Kennedy assassination, the un unsolved parts of the Kennedy assassination case, and to, I guess you would say, lobby for and agitate for a um, a congressional investigation, which ultimately concluded which, with the um, House Select Committee on Assassinations in the late 70s. So that's my involvement with it. Uh, beyond that, um, I, I've been a journalist and a writer um, in various capacities throughout my life and you know, still, still currently a writer, having nothing to do with the Kennedy assassination, both fiction and nonfiction. Now, when, what, were, what were you working on when you were a journalist? Like, how'd you get interested in the Kennedy assassination? I, I was a freelance reporter in the Boston area, both a, a, a staff reporter and then a freelance reporter for different, what you would call alternative weekly newspapers in Cambridge and Boston in the early 70s. I knew a little, I had a little curiosity about the Kennedy case, but not a lot of curiosity um, from having had a college friend who was very interested in the Garrison investigation in New Orleans. So, I mean, the Clay Shaw case and all that. So I, I had had a friend who had told me a lot about that. I listened with half an ear, not skeptical, but nor was I uh, completely smitten with what it was about. Um, a few years went by and I was living in Cambridge, Mass. And I remember this vividly, having read it, either I read a post or somebody told me, I can't tell, I can't recall the exact trigger for this, but that's, um, there was a little bookstore uh, in uh, Cambridge, uh, kind of a leftist bookstore. And that, that night in the basement of the bookstore, someone was gonna be showing a purloined copy of the Zapruder film. Oh my God. Now this was the early seventies. Uh, I would say 1973 possibly. And the Zapruder film, if you knew anything about the case, and as I say, I was not a buff, but I knew a few things, was uh, sort of a haunting, um, you know, a haunting feature that nobody had ever seen. And that someone, and so I heard about this, I went, you know, it felt like an old speakeasy scene out of the Prohibition era. It was literally in this basement of a bookstore and someone had a eight millimeter film and it was a black and white copy of the Zapruder film. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen it now and you know what the startling, you know, I know there's a lot of dispute about what it actually shows, but I can tell you to the untrained and curious eye, um, what it showed me and would show anyone is Kennedy being hit by several shots and being sort of blasted violently backwards in the seat in a way that was completely contrary to the alleged location of the assassin Oswald, which would have been directly behind him. So that was, I saw that and that really did ignite a curiosity. I would say if I can go and feel free to jump in with questions because I know I can ramble or well, this was before Geraldo Rivera showed it on his show, right? So, yeah, oh, like, wait, 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 you know, possibly five years before that. I'm 25. Yeah, so several, several years before that. I'm 25. So my time gap. So, yeah, yeah. Different. No, I don't, I'm not, <laughs> I don't mean to, uh, uh, I, I'm not trying to one up you. I just, so it would be, yes, yeah, several years before Geraldo Rivera. And it was a, it was a black and white copy. Um, 
I got interested in the case and I and I did I think I wrote an art because I was doing freelance article I probably wrote something I can't remember exactly what about some of the controversy and be, and got got connected again so this is the Boston area got connected uh through my curiosity to a a man named Ed Berkeley have you ever heard that name Ed Berkeley was a Harvard mathematician um who had started a was the pu publisher and editor of an early stage computer magazine. This is early stage of the computer industry called Computers and Automation. Ed Berkeley um, had started publishing in this computer magazine attempts to have photographic analysis, and he would publish the photographs of, of, of photos of the Kennedy assassination and also um, some of the stills from life from um, the Zapruder film that appeared in Life magazine. Again, the Zapruder film had never been shown in public, and nobody except for the FBI and the Warren Commission, and perhaps Life magazine, which bought the rights. Nobody had ever it had never been seen. You know, all thirty seconds of it, or whatever the length. Um, so I got introduced to Ed Berkeley and computers and automation, and the reason this t tell me if this is getting too convoluted. Uh, I haven't talked about it for some time, so um, that they had accumulated through a particular collector of the photographic evidence, a guy named Richard Sprague, who was at that time an executive at IBM and was himself a computer, um, uh, new computers. And again, this was, you know, before the explosion of the computers industry. But so this magazine uh, several times would print photographs and try to do a computer analysis, tr trying to show movement on the grassy knoll, try to uh, do sequencing of the um, the headshots in the Zepruder film to show various things. I met these people. I met Ed Berkeley. I met Dick Sprague. And Sprague had, had been a, sort of a right-hand resource to Jim Garrison at the Clay Shaw trial. It is, I think it's since come out, although... You, you maybe know more and maybe it can be documented, that the way the Zapruder film became available in its stolen and, you know, um, purloined fashion was Garrison had subpoenaed the, Jap, the uh, Zapruder film for the Clay Shaw trial, had shown it to the jury at the Shaw trial, and somehow copies were made, you know, secret copies were made there. So that was sort of how it got... Um, at least minimally disseminated. At any rate, I met the these collectors of the visual evidence, of the photographic evidence, and I, I was I thought they were stunning to look at. If you organized them in a certain way, they made a, a powerful case for at least re-examining the Kennedy assassination. And I was surprised that nobody was making a public display out of this other than the few issues of computers and Aut automation magazine. And I proposed to them, why don't we assemble this in kind of like a show, you know, like a narrative show where you could tell the story of the case with these, with these photographs illustrating a case for conspiracy. And uh, could I, could, could you allow me to do that with you, you know, with these photographic materials that you possessed? 
they the first thing they said to me, and these were really good guys and they were very generous with their time and their expertise, was that we already have someone within our computer network who's doing this. Maybe you can just help this person um, arrange some public appearances. And so I did that for, um, I don't know, a couple of weeks. And I, and I, um, I remember his name, but I, I I'd rather not mention it. Anyways, he was a computer guy. He meant well. I went to one of his presentations. And if it was possible to make the photographic evidence of the Kennedy assassination boring, or it would not have seemed to me possible to do it, but this guy did it. You're going to have to tell me off air. I'm curious now. What? Uh, who the name of the person is. His name was Bob Saltzman. I haven't, I've not seen him since. I, I don't know that he even stayed connected to the case. I've he was a good him. guy. He was out of Schenectady, New York, which was an IBM headquarters, I think, at that time, maybe still is. Um, and he meant well, but he had no flair for doing it. He had no, um, uh, he didn't know how to, to organize the material to make it compelling to a lay audience. And um, so I, I helped him out a little. I was disappointed with how he went about it. And I went back to these guys, Dick Sprague and Ed Berkeley, and said, I, I think I can do a better job. And they said, give it a shot. And, and, and that's what I wound up doing. And for the next several years, partly on my own, and eventually I got picked up by a, uh, a kind of you know, entertainment agency, I guess you would say. I, I literally gave hundreds of talks around the country, you know, from this would have been just post Watergate. So the case was interesting. Um, the Watergate hearings, which you know plenty about, uh, I think awakened um, a public uh, openness to the idea that the government's last word on an investigation is not necessarily the last word. And so for several years, I did that um, and eventually got involved with a few other people to form what we called, I think jocularly at the outset, the Assassination Information Bureau, kind of a, a play on words of the FBI. Um, but it's a name that we, we came up with and we, didn't, we never came up with a better one. Um, feel free to jump in as I say, a, a key connection there, and I'll just, I'll give a shout out, um, is I was introduced, again, this is all in the Boston area, that there was a man named Carl Oglesby. Do you, do you know Carl's name? So Carl at that time was, was a, he was a, a wonderful writer and a sort of, had been a mainstay of the anti-Vietnam war movement, had been actually national president of Students for Democratic Society, SDS, and that Carl was in Boston and was doing some, was actually teaching at MIT uh, in their political science department that he was, someone told me he was talking a lot in his MIT classes about the Kennedy assassination. And so I got introduced to him and, um, and he, he was just, he, he was both brilliant and just a wonderful person. I, I say in past tense, uh, he died a few years ago, um, that, that he gave a kind of intellectual gravitas to the idea, A, that there was a conspiracy and B, that it had, um, that it wasn't just a frivolous murder mystery exercise to be curious about it, but it had, uh, Carl was very much of the belief that it had monumental political import, particularly with regard to the Vietnam War. 
Um, I know that's disputable in some respects, but at that moment in time, it was an argument that meant a lot um, to my conviction that this was um, an important investigation to pursue. Do you believe that Kennedy was killed as a result of a conspiracy? As a, yes. You do? When you mentioned, you said the Zapruder frames, but you said alleged um, push back. Do you not think that the head went back at all? I do, but uh, but you know, if, you, if I don't know, I, I, I don't want to be. Um... You're going to, I mean, it's the community is the only one that seems to be divided in attack on certain details and stuff. But for the general public, I've shown plenty of people that. And then I've also pulled up the PBS special where they did on it. And the guy says, I don't know, the head looks like it goes back. And I forgot who it was on it, but he goes, Well, so the untrained eye, you don't know if Jackie Kennedy could have pushed him back. I'm like, Did you just say that? On there, like that's like one of the theories that goes out there. But he said that on like television, and that was broadcasted in the documentary news, whatever special that they did. So to me, it's just like I at that point I'm watching and I'm like, look, I know for a fact, like, wouldn't the head just be lying in the seat in front of him if he got, you know, rocketed forward, but he falls to the side, basically almost in Kennedy's or uh, Jackie Kennedy's lap. So it looks so, like it just so I I mean I, I can't, you know there have been so-called scientific experts from, you know, Nobel physicists on the one hand, you know, saying that it, it's legitimate evidence of a, a shot from the front, you know, the backward motion is. And, and I know there's been people with scientific credentials disputing that. Uh, um, let, let's just say if, if you lacking um, scientific hair splitting, you look at it, I mean, you can see why it's a powerful piece of visual evidence and I don't think there's any question in my mind, the reason it was essentially kept from the public was because of what it would, the, the conclusions that people would draw from that violent backward motion. Well, as a journalist, is that normal for the government to have a connection with news outlets like that? Like I get like covering some scandals and things of that sort. You can look at Johnson after he becomes president, a bunch of scandals drop. Um, on him. And I know people say that that's why it's a conspiracy. He did it. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is that the scandals went away. There's evidence of that. So you look at like Gail Nix, who's been suing the CIA for her grandfather's film. Like, why doesn't she have access to her film? I mean, is it something that could be rationally explained, like protecting the image? Well, I've heard that are you talking about the Zapruder film? No, the Gail, the Nix film. Yeah. But I, yeah, no, I don't know. I don't have an answer. I no, mean, you, you raise main, a good question. The, the main subject goes down to the Zapruder film, which is good. Why was it bought and stored for so long and not released to the public? Could have been protecting the image of the president, but then why would Time Magazine or Life Magazine do that themselves? And they and paid then, a huge sum. You know, they paid a huge sum for exclusive rights. Uh, um, uh, and they gave it back for a dollar. Is that I, you? I did not know that. Yeah, they gave it back to Abraham Zapruder for a dollar. But I, that's the thing is like when I had to talk to um, John Sunheim and a couple people from the ARRB, I had to ask if Doug Horn was the only dissenter on that film because he was the one that was very vocal about how the Zapruder film was edited. And I know he goes into specific details on stuff like that. I'm like, either way, it's a damning film, whether a couple frames are taken out or not. I mean, I think anybody that watches it just goes, OK, that's a head back. So that brings me. So among the things that uh our group did the Assassination Information Bureau. The, we had sort of a coming out party, um, if you will, where we stay, we um, staged, I think, a two or three day conference held at Boston University. Um, and this would have been, I, I'm thinking around 1976, 
it was it was before the HSCA started, and um, and at that conference, uh, and um, <laughs> you can look it up. Uh, do, do you know the name Bob Groden? Or yeah. So Bob Groden was a uh, 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 he was in the New Jersey New York area and, and had an expertise and actually was employed at a film production house. And he knew, I, I don't even know what the technical name for having the capabilities that he had were, but but he had gotten a hold of one of the um, early stage uh, Zapruder film copies and had done a, a super enhanced computer, um, you know, uh, not computer generated, but a super enhanced blown up version of the Zapruder film where, um, as you know, if you look at the original copy, uh, you know, Kennedy in the limousine occupies what, maybe 20% of the frame, it's down at the bottom. And Groden was able to blow it up and enhance it where you, where you could see all the more vividly, unmistakably, uh, the fatal shots and the backward motion. And he showed it for the first time at our conference. You know, we knew about him. Uh, one of our, uh, Harvey Yazijan, I think one of our, one of our members uh, had some uh, relationship with Groden, so he knew about it. Groden brought it to our conference. It was shown for the first time ever, um, the Zapruder film, this enhanced version. At the conference, attending, and I don't think he had a role at our conference, I think he was just attending, was a, a man named Dick Gregory, who was a very, at that point, I would say either a famous or a semi-famous nightclub comedian. Sort of, if you read about him, uh, he was on all the big talk shows, uh, Famous comedians of the the next era, like Richard Pryor, would cite him as their, you know, the, their their model and their mentor. Even uh, Dick Gregory, you know, was a nationally known comedian with a um, a black man with a um, with a political sensibility. He was at our conference, and he had many a connection to network TVs because of it. Again, this was pre cable era, so we're talking you know, three or four, ABC, NBC, CBS. He, Gregor was at our conference. I, he called, again, I don't know all the dynamics because I, I was not privy to it, but within 24 hours, he and Grodin were appearing on, I believe it was the Today Show or maybe Good Morning America and showed the film. I think that's Geraldo Rivera's show. That's the one he did. Well, Rivera... Um, Maybe so. You might know, but it was it was within a day or two of our conference. It was a morning show. Well, Rivera might have been in the morning then. I don't. Uh, it was a morning show, and and there was an explosion of controversy and interest after that. And that plus other things, I think, that were coalescing uh, the talks I was giving, articles that were being written. Um, that I think coalesced in a lot of public pressure that resulted in the HSCA. Now, before we get to the HSCA investigation, I mean, through all the years that you, from back then to where you're at now, I'm, I'm sure you kind of got out of the whole assassination thing, which good on you because I'm trying to figure out how to do that now. Uh, but there has to be uh, a, still an interest. I mean, at least a curiosity in the aspect of why aren't some of these documents released? Like that's a big thing for me, and I've like I've only been in it for a year, but as a younger generation, be like, you guys went way past their date. I mean, the HSCA, the ARRB was supposed to be the one to start declassifying what could be declassified. And then we have so many more that are still getting released. We just got some released in December and then there's now 4,000 still left and it's been damn near 60 years. So it's kind of like, 
You're waiting for the people who actually were there and cared to die? Like, I don't understand why it's waiting so long. Well, I mean, the people who are there and cared and probably have, many of them have passed on, as you know. Uh, I mean, if you're asking me, you know, to the extent I may impress you, I think accurately is detached from it. You know, what's that about? I, I applaud anybody who is still trying to legitimately investigate, many of whom you're talking to, and it sounds to me like you're a half a step from being one of those, and maybe you are one of those. Um, I, I admire and applaud that. It's um, either that or I'm going in a nut house. I don't know which one's coming. Well, first. the, 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 the <laughs> it's going to be the nut house one. Two roads diverged. Um, but did you notice what was like some of the hardest things for you researching and talking about it? I mean, was it the public's outcry the, for it? I mean, when I was most involved, it was it was all gratifying. It was I mean, there would be pushback, and but um, there was a big public appetite. As you know, I, I don't know what the last polls show, but you know, seventy or eighty percent of the public, you know, it's getting muddied now because the word conspiracy um, is used in such. Um, I think deceptive and manipulative ways that I can I'm powerless to interpret, but it, but it's you know the it, it it's very hard to make a distinction about conspiracy theories that are rooted in some real cause for having um for having questions and conspiracy theories that are simply propaganda opportunities. And um well as a journalist, you probably could just look through the history and be able to show people that what they're deeming as a conspiracy has a track record in the past. I think it's the only conspiracy part that people attach this to is the fact that it was the president. And they go, how could there be a conspiracy against our own president? And especially one where a lot of people point like it's a more of a domestic thing rather than it being a foreign adversary that took out. I know Blakey blamed the mafia and everything, but if you blame like the military industrial complex or anything, any of the list of names that people bring that's not Lee Harvey Oswald, People go, there's no way. And I go, well, I mean, heart attack gun, I would have said is a conspiracy, but there's footage of that CIA on college campuses, a bunch of stuff that was going against the underground press and so much during the 70s. You've read a lot. Like, Good for you. So yeah. when you start looking at those, I'm like, it's not that crazy. I just think a lot of people aren't educated on some of these aspects that have been recorded in our history. Like the church committee should be basic reading in school, in my opinion, but that's not even, I had to find that out doing the podcast and then. At two o'clock in the morning, I was reading like seven hundred. And it's weird. Have you ever seen how it's the church committee has come up in the last month or two, but in a really weird way? Where that some of these one of these crazy new congressional committees claims that they're going to try to be like the church committee, and I think it going after Hunter Biden's laptop or something, you know. Well, that's they all are all I guess right wing or Republicans that are doing the church committee. I was like, you can't have anybody that has a political affiliation. Like when I spoke to Tunheim and I asked him about his interest in the assassination, he's like, I didn't care much about the assassination when i did this like i didn't i wasn't interested as much as everybody else was interested into being a part of the assassination records review board here's here's what i found when i was um, quite involved and i think it pertains even to what my attitude remains still which is when you talk about who did it or might have done it you're clearly i believe in in the arena of speculation it is no, there, there's no other way to characterize that, that you know, that discussion. Speculation um, is not 
how you make the argument for conspiracy. I, you know, I, you, I think you make the argument for conspiracy on the, you know, how many shots were fired? What was, you know, what was the capability of the rifle? What does the medical evidence tell you about um, where the shots came from? That's the argument for conspiracy. Once I believe um, someone is persuaded that there was more than one gunman, which I think is absolutely the case, and I believe the facts argue for that. Um, you you are no longer debating was there or was there not a conspiracy. You you can then go on to conjecture, but but the fail the failure to to persuade someone who might have done it is different from the the uh, the effort to persuade someone that that there was more than one gunman and that it needs to be investigated. Well, the response to that from like the Warren Commission side is like, well, then name them. It's like, well. I'm sorry that they didn't bother to do the investigation properly and look for conspiracy. Within 24 hours of an investigation, they said that there was no conspiracy. It was one guy. They didn't look for a getaway driver. They didn't look for anything of that sort. And then we get a bunch of stuff like a taxi cab trip and a bus trip and all this. And then, I mean, you do kill, allegedly kill two people, then go to a theater, which is suspicious in its own. I would just go home and take a nap maybe. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that just didn't make sense. And then the main focus is the HSCA. I mean, they proved a probable conspiracy on the fact that Jack Ruby killed Oswald. But we, the history books do not talk about the HSCA. As from what I've heard, people haven't even heard the name House Select Committee on Assassinations. And how do you – in other words, it is, it is the last and most um, detailed investigation. And it, it's yeah, – I mean, you make a good point. It, it's – it's essentially been removed, you know, it's, it, it, it's the last word on what, the last official word on what's happened, and yet it's nowhere remarked upon. Um, when you followed the HSCA investigation, did you notice anything that they were, I mean, I heard a lot of problems that they faced, like publicity, they had to give like, press meetings all the time and then also they were on time restraints and i don't know if you paid attention to any of that or do you think anything was I, I was in washington for the duration of the so i went to many 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 most if not all of the public hearings i was at um i attended um i was also involved in, before blakey there you know the, they had a chief counsel before blakey who started up his name, interesting, was also Richard Sprague. I referred to a Richard Sprague, who was the um, the collector of the photographic evidence. But the first counsel, pre before Blakey, there was a man named Richard Sprague, who was named the chief counsel of the House Select Committee on Assassination. I was very enthused about him. He had been a uh, prosecutor in Pennsylvania, prosecuted a famous um, murder case of the, the uh, president of the United United Mine Workers had been murdered, um, a, a kind of union activist, um, and uh, and I don't exactly remember why Sprague fell out of favor. The the head of the committee then um, was not Louis Stokes, who wound up being head of the congressional committee. It was I believe it was Henry Gonzalez of Texas. Um, so so there was a there was a prior iteration of the HSCA. I don't know how far they went. Um, and I'm not sure exa exactly why I'm even mentioning it, except uh, you raised the question of the HSCA having had problems. No doubt they did. You know, they had they they had a big budget, but but a limited budget. Um, they were they had access to FBI and CIA files, but 
but as we know, we don't we don't even know how how complete their access was. Even Blakey, when I had him on here, said that he felt that the CIA withheld a lot of stuff from. Him. All right. And well, I, you know, the, say no more. That's if, if Blakey said that, that, that's the truth. You know. Which I, 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 when I'm talking to him and we talked for almost two hours, I showed a lot. Like I have a lot of documents that state like off the books meeting with Blakey to explain some national security issues. And I get it if you're going to talk about intelligence stuff, but I told him was any of these JM Wave related on the release of documents, and that was before December of the release. And he said could be possible. And then December releases documents, and there's like ten pages of JM Wave documents. So it's like. Oswald is his name on it. I don't know, but you can just easily label something JM Wave and then it could be an intelligence thing. Have, and have you I run in? I, I know this is being taped and you can, well, I mean, we could talk about it. Have you, has anybody mentioned to you or have you talked to a man named Paul Hoke, H O C H? I've spoken to Paul Hoke on the phone. Okay, yeah, because I, I feel Paul knows, I used to feel he knew as much as anybody. And he's a very, I always thought of him as a very clear headed, fair minded guy. I don't know. All right, so you have spoken to him, yeah. Um, but I mean, through the HSCA's investigation, through all the problems that they face, do you think that any of it seemed suspicious to you? Like it, if you're going to have an investigation or a second investigation into the Warren Commission's work or whatever, wouldn't they be gifted uh, a budget that would last or something to be able to do the job and not be put on time restraints? Um, rephrase the question. Are you asking me, do I think um, they were limited in what they could do or that they were in error in what they did do? Do you think it's suspicious that they didn't have full access to be able to do their job properly? Um, well, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, Do you think it was on purpose is what I'm saying? Are we talking about um, the FBI or the CIA withholding documents? Not just withholding documents, but trying to continue destruction of documents during their investigations. I, I don't have a way of knowing that. I, I really don't know. Uh, Okay. I, I mean, if you looked into the HSC, I just, I didn't, I don't know. I wasn't around when that was all going on. So I would have to see it on the news or see word come out about it. I barely even touch on the garrison subject because I don't feel like you need to get, use him to get into the level of conspiracy. The, the only disappointment I have with the HSCA, and it's, it's a fairly marginal disappointment, is um, on the heels of Watergate, um, where the Watergate committee, which had a lot more to play with, um, and, and you know, and you know, the, there was the the very real attempt to um, depose a president. Uh, I, I felt the HSCA could have done more with the public presentation of what they were doing. Um, the the uh, I don't remember. I don't remember if there were any tele televised hearings. They were public hearings. I don't believe any of them. There may have been a few that were live televised. I really don't remember that. Um, it might be interesting for you to find out. And if so, I wonder if there, you know, the um, the videotape exists. But I felt they could have, um, you know, they did reach out to the media, but I, I felt it could have been staged. I mean, we've seen with, with the recent uh, January 6th committee, you know, in Congress, what a committee that's devoted to trying to make a, educational public experience out of their hearings can do. And I think the HSA, probably it wasn't their, um, it's not how they saw their mission. Uh, Blakey being a lawyer and a prosecutor, probably I can only imagine thought there was something a little, um, if not distasteful, uh, something, you know, a, 
a little too unprofessional by having that kind of emphasis. I'm not sure. I do remember, and it was a stunning moment. So there was a um, a whole H a whole kind of a fascinating side aspect, or I wouldn't even call it a side aspect, an aspect of their their investigation, which was trying to recreate the sound, the acoustical elements of Dealey Plaza. Do you know about all that? Yeah, the acoustic evidence. Yeah, having to do with the um, the Dictabel tape off of a police motorcycle. And the, any, anyways, they, they kind of staged a reenactment firing rifles from around the circumference of Dealey Plaza. Um, from locations that were plausibly where shots may have come from. They made a recording of this. And at some point, and it, it was a it was almost a surreal moment that you would find in a fictionalized version of the hearings if there, if there ever was one, where they tried to match up the filtered out sounds of what might have been gunfire on the Dictabelt tape and link it to the visual evidence of the six seconds of the Zapruder film and that the sound sort of matched up. It was as if, and I'm getting it garbled here, but it, and this was all in a hearing room. It was as if they at last were able to provide a sound track to the hauntingly silent Zapruder film that at the moment of the headshot, there's something that sounds like a shot uh, at the prior moment where it looks like um, Kennedy is kitten, hit in the back. There is a sound from the dick. Um, and the linking of those sounds to this hauntingly silent film was a, I could imagine had that been on national television, it, it would have been a stunner. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I don't believe they ever looked at it that way. I know there's been a lot of back and forth sniping about the legitimacy of some of their work in that regard. Um, both sides reject the acoustic evidence. And I think when I spoke is with that, Blakey, is that, okay. yeah, <laughs> there, but when yeah. I spoke with Blakey, Blakey supported it and said it was good work. Well, and, 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 and when you say they, they um, rejected or disputed, that's been months and years afterwards. And the real moment of that hearing that I'm talking about, it reigned supreme. It was a, it was a um, overwhelmingly persuasive piece of evidence. Now, with the Zapruder film, have you ever went into if it was edited or not? Like the original copy you saw in that, you know, basement, the black and white, compared to the I, one that I, was. I, I certainly have not looked into it. Um, I yield to anybody who might know more. Um, I, I know there was there was just there was um, some controversy about Life magazine when they published the stills of it, um, uh, changing the sequence of the stills for some reason. They put, they put them out of frame or put them out of frame. Yeah. I mean, you're a journalist. You know about Operation Mockingbird. Which one? Operation? Mockingbird. Remind me. It's about media assets that are employed by the government. And there's plenty of documents in the releases of the JFK stuff of like the Times president or whoever runs that magazine corporation and like 12 other people that were invited to like run, launch staff meetings to talk about certain issues in the Kennedy case. It's not just in the Kennedy case, though. That's well known. Operation Mockingbird is. Well, you well know done. more than me. And this uh, further evidence of how far I'm lapsed. No, I don't know. About it's it. not really needs to be Kennedy related, but it's just journalistic ethics. I mean, conflicts of interest are real things. If you're going to report a story. 
Um, would you report the story if it was for your career? Either you could lose your career if it happened to be a conflict of interest with one of the corporations or magazines that you're publishing for might have a relationship with the person you might be publishing about. Yeah. Well, you're, uh, from a journalistic uh, aspect, have you ever had any well, interest or any you, you know, I've commented that, uh, it, I mean, that, that again is sort of the role that the Warren Commission played is that it preempted, you know, the, the sort of legitimate journalistic investigation that, that, that you would think would have gone on was, I believe, uh, kind of sidetracked and maybe thought to, you know, rendered unnecessary by the Warren report. Um, well, the Warren Commission was like 13 or however many members with like amazing resumes. So I think everyone just figured they would do their job correctly. But if you look at like the number of interviews they went into was wasn't that I mean, is it bad really to criticize the Warren Commission? I've seen a couple of people be patriots of it. But I feel like if you talk about the HSCA's investigation, that's a much more thorough investigation, in my opinion, of just looking over the actual sure. case. And, and I believe you've talked with Blakey, so you might know this better, but I believe it was Blakey's feeling that the Warren Commission had an assignment, which was, you know, to find Oswald, you know, to to um, bolster the case that Oswald was the lone assassin. And and um, their focus was that and not much else. Did you ever hear about the HSCA and the person that broke into that safe? What safe? There was a safe in their office that they had. Uh, Blake, they, everyone, there's a there's a safe in the office of the HSCA or records building, whatever it was. And there was a person that was a janitor that happened to be a, working with the CIA who broke into the safe. And that is well documented. I talked to Blakey about it. And he said, oh, it was just his own curiosity. And I'm like, well, how did he get the codes to go into the safe then? Like, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I don't know about that. Especially yeah. if you're a janitor. And then I went through a diary and left it on a windows. I asked him all about this stuff, but he couldn't remember. I mean, what, what but, is he, um, you know, I'm going to ask you a question. What is your sense of why, of what Blakey thinks about why the HSCA um, has essentially been um, wiped off the history books? I mean, I mean, he must be aware of that. I, I connected with him on that. I said, they don't even talk about you. Um and I think that's does he have any feeling about that or yeah he doesn't know why he thinks his investigation proved a lot of interesting things but he also feels now that the CIA withheld documents from him and that we all can see now that the Warren Commission was wrong in saying that Oswald was just like a lonely loser type that we know a little bit more about him now based on documents that to say that paint a, a little bit of a better picture of him I think he still believes Oswald did it um, but he blames obviously the mafia for a second shot being fired, which I mean, if you want to pick anybody in this case of mafia, you know, whatever, I, I like John Orr's um, explanation, which is like, it's the best mystery, horror, murder series all wrapped up into one. It's got mafia figures with FBI agents and CIA agents and crooked cops and all this type of stuff. It, it is that. And I think that's from over the years of people trying to do the independent research. And I think there's a lot of good things about it, you know, when it comes to the research community, but you know, it, ends up boiling down for a younger generation like myself to speak to someone like you who was just around and experienced it, not even a researcher, but just around when all this was happening to be able to let us know what was it being exposed at the time as well, too. Well said. Yeah. Now, when it comes to the Kennedy assassination, or even if you put it down, 
did you was it easy to go back to any regular journalism i mean if you have that as like a i wouldn't i don't know if you put that on your resume but if people knew you were involved in such things did that create any problems with trying to get into the journalistic field again well, well let me make a clarification i was a regular semi-regular kind of journalist prior to that i never went back to that <laughs> to regular you know i've written a couple non-fiction books uh that are completely journalistic, but one about a uh, dramatic school incident in, in rural Alaska called Elaine Circle. I'm very proud of. I wrote a nonfiction book, which is gets, which I would hope gets attention this time of year about an elite NCAA college basketball referee and in, in the world of basketball refereeing. So I've done. I, I've never done subsequent to to the Kennedy case anything that I would call investigative reporting. That's a major gear change over to NCAA. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, at some point, you know, I was a young man then uh, who needed to earn a living. So I actually was in business for a long time. Um, so it, it was, um, yes, a career change. But but it, uh, honestly, um, I felt that my interest in the case, the energies I put into it, culminated with the HSCA, that, that that was what my efforts were geared towards. I was uh, very gratified that the investigation, that Congress voted for the investigation. I felt it was a worthwhile investigation. There was no, uh, there was nothing that I imagined for myself in terms of my involvement beyond that. Um, for example, um, I would have had and I know that I had many offers to do public speaking on the case after that, and I didn't. It's it's not it's not as if I was disheartened or disappointed. It's just that I had done what I wanted to do and said what I felt I had to say, and and until the sort of interview that we're participating in now, I really haven't had much to say or much involvement since then. I give you a lot of credit for being able to step away from it. I mean, I know people have been researching well, I, this. For when people pass years. me things to read, I read, and I do. You know, I, I have old colleagues who do send me things, but uh, but no further involvement. Uh, because I'm a writer, people have tried to cajole me over the years to write. You know, there's been a handful of novels uh, by some fairly acclaimed, uh, significantly acclaimed writers like Don DeLillo. Um, uh, Stephen King, uh, who've come out with novels rooted in the Kennedy assassination in Dallas. And I just have no, and I'm sure they're well done and they probably are interesting. Stephen King says it's a lone nut, I'm pretty sure, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. But 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 uh but I've always but I've not read them and I always declined to read them with the following understanding, which is nothing can be more interesting than the documentary evidence. I don't, I don't need a fictionalized version of something this inherently fascinating. Okay, when you say documented evidence, could you just give me one of your go-tos that you usually pull out when it's something suspicious? I usually mention the 24 hours until there's a, you know, canceling out that there's a conspiracy within 24 hours. Usually you would be looking for a getaway driver. And also you got a job there a month before. It was even published in the newspaper, and Kennedy, I think, had two speeches in Dallas that day. So he could have shot him at a podium, but he shot him from his work. Or I was just like, it doesn't make sense. I mean, the whole thing, I mean, you've read about the whole, if you read the early stage um, 
uh, critiques of the Warren Commission. There's a famous book called Accessories After the Fact by a woman named Sylvia Marr. Uh, you're not going to, no novel could be more interesting than, I mean, she, I can't remember exactly what her, she was like a legal secretary or something. I mean, she was not someone with significant um, uh, credentials, but had a brilliant mind and went through the Warren Commission report and volumes and wrote a book that was fascinating in all the minute particulars. Um, that's what I mean by the documentary evidence. A lot of it is just even, even culled from the Warren report. I've not, I've not read, I don't know if anybody's gone through the House Select Committee's report with that kind of fine tooth comb, but I bet you there's fascinating stuff in there. Um, Did you ever think after all this time that there'll still be documents left to be released? No. It's uh, especially, I mean, even back then, I, I think a lot of people are thinking this is going to be the year, this is going to be the year. And then it's, even if you get some released, I was surprised that I came in right at the right time, I guess, uh, less than a year. I got, there was documents that were released and it definitely throws you down a rabbit hole, but have you ever visited any of the conferences or any of the national archive stuff? Um, no, I mean, uh, probably in the year or two after the HSCA, I, I might have had some proximity to some of that, but nothing since. And again, it's not as if I um, turn my back on it. It's just my, you know, my personal and professional interests have gone elsewhere. I'm um, still jealous that you got to see the Zapruder film. Like, well, you've seen in, it, right? In, in mean, the black and white. I have not seen it in the black and white. But the original is color. The original is color. They, the stolen copies were black and white. Why I were believe. they? Why were they black and white if the original was color? Because they, they were. Uh, I, don't quote me. <laughs> uh, well, go ahead and quote me. But quote me as saying I'm not sure. Um, I believe because it was sort of purloined. I use that word because it comes out of murder mysteries or mystery novels. It, it was because it, it was a stolen copy. They, they were only able to make. Um, black and white copies. It was done on the run in the back room somewhere. Yeah, so the, I believe the original, I'm pretty sure the original is color and that the, um, and that what I, the black and white copy that I saw was black and white simply because it was, you know, a second or a third generation stolen copy. Did, did, did you ever look into, they had three Zapruder films originally? Never heard that. That's uh, Doug Horn's work for the ARRB. He made a documentary about it, but I was just like curious, like where did someone able get the chance to be able to get a copy of it to be able to have black marketed copies? Because that's what I always heard. Like when someone said they saw the Zapruder film, like I had a black market copy. So, so what I was told, and again, you know, the, there's no, this is only, you know, third hand is that in the Garrison subpoenaed the film from Time Life magazine. Or the from Clay the Shaw trial. Maybe he got it from one or the other. I can't remember which. Yeah, for the Clay Shaw trial. It was shown to the jury at the Clay Shaw trial. And Garrison had it in his possession for, I don't know, a day, a week. In, you know, that the New Orleans district attorney had this a copy of this. And that copies were made somehow from that. So I, so I was told. Um, That's always what someone says, like a... Uh, from like uh, some of the ARB members when I was speaking to them, they would say my personal opinion. And then in my head, I go, this is when you're going to say something conspiratorial, I bet you. And then they say something like 
this is Kennedy's brain when they're looking at the photos of it. I'm like, damn, why'd you got to say the personal opinion right before you said that? Um, but it's interesting to me because like I haven't been to the archives. I'd like to go at some point. But when you worked for the Assassinations Information Bureau, did you just look into JFK or were you interested in other stuff as well, too? I mean, it had to level the playing field for what the government was up to, considering. Well, as you know, the HFCA also investigated the King assassination. So I was at those hearings, um, you know, I'm one of a, a finite number of people still alive who actually saw James Earl Ray in the flesh. I was at the, well, just at the hearing where he testified, it was quite, quite something. Um, so, so I certainly closely followed the investigation of the King assassination. It was, and which, you know, historically you could say had almost is is as dire an impact on the United States as the the assassination of John Kennedy, um, and I paid attention to other peripheral um, things that were going on around the national security state and the intelligence agencies. You know, I I I, I was pretty familiar with the Church investigation. Do you think that it's pretty shocking for a lot of people? Well, at least a lot of people don't really talk about or know about the church committee and what they were able to prove? I mean, I, I, I wish we lived in a country where it was um, unusual that people would be ignoring those sort of things. But no, it's, it, you know, I think it's important. Um, it's not surprising to me that it's been ignored or maybe even misrepresented. Um, do you think if there's ever a second church committee that it would be done properly? Should it be done by nonprofit organizations? I just want to get people to define the term. Well, only security. the government has subpoena power. So, you know, that you just, I mean, again, I don't recall too much about the church committee, but I believe it is from there that we know what we know or know what we knew about the uh, Castro assassination attempts. And from that, as you know, comes a lot of information and a lot of insight that may pertain to Dallas. You know, so, so at least it lets you know what your agencies are up to. The organized crime thing, when I found that out, freaked me out. I was like, wait a minute, I've seen every movie has been FBI good and mafia bad. And now you're telling me our government's working with the organized crime aspect makes you rethink a couple of things. And and Blakey's investigation certainly touched on that. Um, you know, he even he uh um, you know, he went after a couple of big mobsters. Uh, <laughs> this is a an, an amusing and, pro and almost completely irrelevant personal anecdote. I remember being, um, so I don't, it was, the hearings were held in one of the congressional office buildings. I don't remember which one, um, but there was, the, one day I was there and the main witness was to have been, um, or was Santos Traficante, who was one of the, um, one of the two mobsters, one of the three mobsters that Blakey uh, felt was was relevant. Um, and uh, and there was a the morning hearing got, I remember, got consumed with something else. So they had a lunchtime break. And I went down to the the um, the cafeteria in the congressional bu building for my lunch. And I'm next to Traficante. Holy shit. <laughs> in the lunch line <laughs> and had a, a brief banter with him and his his uh, lawyer, who, who I believe was probably more of a bodyguard, just based on the man's hulk, hulking size, um, had a brief conversation with Traficante about which sandwich to get uh, at the cafeteria there. And then 
then he was the main witness after lunch he was the main witness and he took the fifth took the fifth on his name and everything else you know Oh my God! What sandwich did he recommend? I don't remember. Oh my God! I would never forget that detail. I, I should make like, up an answer. You know. Holy I, crap! I you to make it up. That's crazy. Oh my God! You're standing right beside Santosh. That's an but, but was what was just to add a, a a further element of my amusement. At that time, I don't know how old he must have been in his seventies, perhaps. He just looked like a, a rumpled old man that had no business being. You know, in a cap, you know, in a congressional, you know, rumpled old man in a rumpled gray suit, and it was amusing to me because he probably had more personal power than any member of the Senate. You know? oh, he probably gave you like a burnt toast recommendation. <laughs> they don't have taste buds at that point. When you get that old, you're just like you'll eat anything a brick. Um, that's crazy. That's an insane story. I'm jealous of the people that you got to be able to meet as well, too. Well, I don't know if I met him. Yeah, but uh, the king. Uh, I'll send you after. I wrote something about um that I'm sort of proud of, which I'll, I'll send you when we get off the, about uh, analogizing um, my experience of the seeing of the King assassination investigation and uh, likening it to the Mueller investigation. And um, Do you find that more of the public was interested in either the Kennedy or the King assassination when it was happening? Well, when you say when it was happening, when the HSCA was doing it? Yeah, because I, I was... I, I th- well, good good question. I, th- there were many, many, many more hearings on the Kennedy case held by the H- public hearings than there were on the King case. On the other hand, the King case produced, you know, one of the one of the um, one of the most uh, you know noteworthy American ghosts, which was a Martin Luther King, you know, or <laughs> which was James Earl Ray. Uh, you know, you know, seeing him in the flesh was a you know, a real creepy experience. We have a lot of um, Kennedy documents. Nor, I should say, am I persuaded that he did it alone? But well. <laughs> with um, Ken- the Kennedy documents, and especially in the release, even with some of the documents looked over at the HSCA and Blakey's investigation, I noticed he was more focused towards the King documents as well, too. At least that's what I could see that there was a little bit more King documents or King mentions than there was Kennedy stuff, which it's an area at some point I'll have to research into as well too to get familiar with the King case, but because I just don't have the education or knowledge to be able to talk about that. Uh, but yeah, it's to me at the time. I mean, which one I guess interested you the most? Did you care more about the president one or? Well, there, the there was there was so much more to be interested in with the JFK case. You had some, you know, as you know, it's it's got so many compartments. Um, and I just feel like all that happening at once. I'd be like, I have to pick a lane or I'm going to go nuts. Well, there you go. I mean, and as you know, there, I mean, uh, I believe he died recently, sadly, uh, David Lifton, a brilliant, do you know that name? Or Yeah, I've know, had David email exchanges him. with him. Pardon? I've had email exchanges with him. Yeah, but didn't he, uh, someone told me he passed away recently. I don't know. He did pass away. He was a very private individual. Um, there's a, we can talk about some stuff. Off I, I mean, I knew David for sure. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but he, you know, brilliant guy who spent what 30 years studying the autopsy one of the first generation researchers did a lot of good I mean, work. but but had no interest in um uh the mafia angle at you know i mean he was just you know so, so there are all these compartments whereas with the king case you know it, it wasn't quite as narrow focused um and there was very you know for an outside person if you weren't you know a, a a professional, if you weren't an investigator as part of the team, there was almost no way to learn um, 
you know, about the FBI's tracking of King, about the, the, the you know, the, the St. Louis prison or uh, where Ray had been held, you know, all the things that pertain to that case. Well, Bob, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Um, I know it's been a while since you talked about the Kennedy case, but I appreciate it as a younger generation trying to understand a little bit more. You guys are like history uh, for us to be able to understand what was going on back then, and I appreciate that. And is there a place where people can find links to your other books as well, too? Um, I have a website, Bob Katz, B-O-B-K-A-T-Z dot info. And on the website, um, there are many of the articles I've written and uh, links to the books that I've written. And I'm going to make sure I link that in the description for yeah, everybody. And, and there there is a, uh, <laughs> I'll put a plug and I'll send this to you, Rob. So, uh, so uh, on, 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 I think it's under a category on the website called news and information. There, there's somewhere there's a link to a, an article I wrote um, comparing the, the King investigation to the Mueller investigation and the, the problems in both. So that might be of interest to some of the listeners. And there's also an article there in a more jocular way uh, about my attempt to get Bob Dylan uh, to play for an event we had to reopen the Kennedy assassination. And uh, What was his interest in the Kennedy case? He wrote a song. Well, well there was none. And it, nobody knew that he had any um, until... You know, about a year ago, right? He came out with this 20-minute song about, it, it, do you know what I'm talking about? Or, yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. So the, the occasion of that song was my opportunity to reflect on a uh, a, a really um, high energy, but ultimately failed effort I made to get him to um, perform for one of our events. And Bob Dylan, mysterious as I'll, ever. I'll send that to you all also. Um, I'll link those in the description, but Bob, thank you so much. Uh, and keep up the great show. work, Rob. I, I commend your interest in the way you're going about it. And um, if you come up with an answer to who did it, will you let me know? I'm not even worried about looking for that. If people spend 60 years doing that, I'll be in here forever. Uh, but I'll link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks for listening to this episode of